baptized but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And if you write in your Bibles, that, that's noon. It's 12 noon. It's the middle of the day when the sun is up and it's hottest. <coughs> A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is John telling us this in those brackets. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Well, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to her, Sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. <clears throat> he who is called Christ, when, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then, 
the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so they went out and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has any, anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Look, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see what the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labor and you have entered into their labor. And so many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his word. So they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And after two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they had too had gone to the feast. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. In, in regards to a title for what I want to say to you very quickly this morning, we'll see how far we get. I know it's Thanksgiving Sunday. I know probably turkeys are in ovens either today or getting ready, so I want to be cognizant of that. But this re week, I read this because this will kind of help you out. Basically, the big idea here is you'll see that this was a conversation that led to a conversion that then leads to mission. So you see Jesus having a conversation with a woman. This woman gets converted and then her conversion immediately leads to mission. But I read about a guy sitting in a park playing checkers with a monkey. And they played on and on, game after game. And as of course, as I can see just by some of your faces, man playing checkers with a monkey, I'd stop and look at that if that was happening in Barring Park or Bannerman Park, right? And so a bigger crowd gathered around them and there was a buzz in the ear and most of the conversation centered around this amazing monkey who could play checkers. And finally, with a tone of exasperation, the man said to the crowd, I don't know why you think he's so great. I've beaten him seven out of ten times. <laughs> All right, let that sink in. You're a little slow this morning, a little bit. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, 
I thought this was hilarious because it vividly illustrates the main point that I want to make in this passage, which is when you miss the main point, when you miss the obvious. The humor is emphasized in this because of the arrogance in the process of this man going, listen, I don't know why you're so impressed. I've beaten him seven out of ten times. You see, he loses his capacity for both wonder and appreciation. And let's be honest, there is a bit of humor in thinking about a monkey playing checkers and beating a dude three out of ten times. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever missed the point? I have. Have you ever walked in a conversation and assumed what was being talked about? And then you tried to join in only to have it go incredibly awkward because you had no idea what that conversation was about? I did this recently. Steve makes my PowerPoint, so he's seen this already. And he's grinning back there because he knows this happened very recently. Steve and I were discussing uh, something that was happening here at the church and deciding on set up. And, and the truth be told, we disagreed about how things should be set up here. We, we had one of our real good disagreements and we didn't really resolve the conversation, kind of left it, and we didn't speak for a little bit. And so I kept moving around the building and Steve was downstairs and he was on his computer and he had his Facebook opened up and his Facebook messenger kept flashing. And because he wasn't talking to me and we hadn't resolved the conversation to decide who was right and who was wrong, I thought and I assumed he was talking to someone about our conversation as if he was trying to get other people on his side so he could then blast me later. And I did not like that. And I created an entire defense and so finally I went down and said, what are you doing? <laughs> On Facebook, getting everybody to agree with you. And Steve looks at me in classic Steve way. <clears throat> I'm talking to my mom about dinner. <laughs> <clears throat> I had completely missed the point. Here I was all worked up, all freaked out all defensive, preparing my arguments because I was focused on me and my issues. Now, I was still busy being a pastor. I was working at the church. I was even working for other people. But I was doing it through the lens of me. Have you ever missed the point? You see, the lens of me is everywhere in John chapter 4, 1 to 45. But Jesus in his mercy and grace breaks the lens. And first he gets the woman, then the disciples, and then a town to see what reality is. For the woman, he, her talk led to salvation. For the disciples, their talk would lead to extended mission. And for the town, their talk led to revival. So very quickly, let me recap first where there was the talk with the woman. All right? If you want to take notes, if you want to break down this passage, because I don't know how much time I'll have it, let me give it to you preemptively. There's the talk with the woman, there's the talk with the disciples, and then there's the talk with the town. 
All right, that's how you break down those 45 verses. There's a talk with the woman. So remember, Jesus has set this up by his commitment to mission. He had to go to Samaria. Last week we learned he didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, most Jews didn't go through Samaria to go from Jerusalem back down to Galilee. They would actually go around Samaria because they didn't want to go through Samaria because Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. But our passage says he had to go. And that was that divine must. He, he had to go. And you can really go all the way back to John chapter 3, verse 17, right? We know verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But then, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn them. To condemn the world. But to save them. Remember back in chapter 1. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And yet, this conversation was indeed a shocking conversation. Last week I told you that it's hard for me to put this in a 21st century Western way because it was confusing to this lady. As you read it, remember all the interactions? She missed the spiritual ramifications of what Jesus is offering her. First, she thinks physically. So she tried a tactical diversion. She changed the subject. But at last, her conversation led to conversion. And as we learned last week from the video that I showed you, remember this statement? To be loved is to be known, and to be known is to be loved. Oh, how I wish I could get everybody here to understand that to be loved is to be known and to be known is to be loved now the fact fact of the matter is if I could talk to you all individually or even in groups most of you would go yeah that's true and most of you go I long for this I, I wish this was true in my life but practically speaking, very few of us ever truly experience this. And that's true of Christians. Tragically, all too often, listen to me now, when it comes to Jesus. See, you'll give mental assent to be known as to be loved and to be loved as to be known. But you really don't believe. Many of you will go, I know God knows everything. <laughs> but you still try to have places that you put a lot of deadbolts on and then chains and then boards and then everything. It's like in the cartoons when you see them chaining everything up and wrapping chains around it and everything like And then someone comes along and just goes poof and it's open they're in. That's God every time. You're not going to hide. Everybody kind of knows even nervously that God knows them, but to believe that God could know everything and every crevice of your mind and heart and yet he loves you. Huh. That's almost too good to be true. And what amazes me is too many Christians will sing about that, will pray about it, will tell other people about it, and then go and live their life as if that's not true. And so I find that now in my mid-40s, have you not gotten tired of playing hide-and-seek with God? I have. It breaks my heart when I see human beings dart around through life as if God doesn't know. And He does. But He loves you. 
You see, for this woman, she couldn't believe it because there was the gender issue. She was a woman. Rabbis, Jewish rabbis didn't talk to women. They prayed this. They would get up. Blessed be thou, O Lord, that thou didst not create me a woman. I didn't say it was politically correct. I just saying that's what they said in the first century. How they prayed that and then went home to a wife and got away with it, I don't understand it. But this is what they would say. Women weren't even allowed to be a, a witness in court in the first century. Is it any wonder that women were so drawn to Jesus and the church? He gave them status. Then there was an ethical issue, or ethnic issue. She was a Samaritan. You can learn all about this in Kings and in Deuteronomy. They were literally half-breeds. When, when the Assyrians defeated the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, they shipped out most of the best of the crop of the Jewish people. And then this king shipped in a whole bunch of basically lower class pagans and made the two intermingle. And so they intermarried and all these types of things. They created their own religion. They only followed Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They even changed some of the words. And so they were ethnic half-breeds and the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. But not only that, there was a moral issue. This is a woman that's had five husbands and she's living with a dude. She's almost as bad as Elizabeth Taylor, who I believe last count before she died had eight or nine husbands. I think she did that like for sport. But you know what? And you know what I'm talking about. You know as much as divorce and remarriage and, and cohabitation and, 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 and we've lowered the standard, the culture has just lowered and lowered and lowered the standard of what it means for men and women to be in relationship with each other. I get it. But yet there's still semblance of a moral shame about this. I had two ladies, I've told you about this, that had to come interview me. I got the weirdest call. These, this late, these two women called me from Academy Canada and they're doing a course about uh, health care in the city. And so everybody was broken into teams and they had to come interview people of faith. And so these two girls looked up me in the phone book, called me up and said, can we come interview you? Sure, come on. And all I thought was, yes, excellent. Bring them to me, <laughs> right? So they come to my office and they're interviewing me about how we do faith and how we see the community and how do we see our role with it. Wonderful questions. And we're getting chatting, and I'm asking them then to tell me their story. And we're telling each other, and I told them how I was born here and just moved back, and they were telling me one lady was from Labrador and one lady was from just outside of St. John's. And so then I asked, so tell me, are, are either one of you married? And as soon as I said it, they both kind of looked at each other, and then they both looked at their feet. Because I think they felt like, uh-oh, that religious dude just asked us about our lives. And the, one, the younger girl says, well, no. Now say a prayer for me, but I'm living with my boyfriend. She did. Like she was almost. Like, and then the other lady who was older, she was like, no. We're divorced and I know you don't approve. And I stopped them both and I said, can I ask? I haven't said a thing. I, I just wondered about your lives. And they both looked at each other and they both started to talk to each other. It's like I left the room. They were like, why did we get all nervous? Because he asked us that. That was my opportunity. Because you see, there's a moral compass in all of us. Whether we want to explain it or not, it's there. 
And this woman had it as well. She didn't go to the well seeking Jesus. Remember the first 20 odd verses? She went because she simply survived and going about her day. And by the way, she goes at 12 noon because even the Samaritans didn't approve of her. If she had been within her community, she'd have gone with all of the ladies in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening. The fact that she goes by herself in the middle of the day means she's also been ostracized by other Samaritans because they've even said, look, we may not be perfect, but we're not you. Like you even give us a bad name. Now, how bad is it when a group of people that got a bad rap single you out and say, you give us a bad rap? Okay, that's her life. But then notice this, Jesus comes to her. Jesus comes to her and asks her for help. Will you give me a drink? And while all the while he knows he's going to help her. <laughs> I love this. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. Jesus never changed the gospel to make it suit people. He changed people to make them fit into his gospel. <laughs> and that's what he does with this woman. That's what he does. What a talk it was. You see, it led to real intimacy. Real intimacy. Now, again, for the sake of a couple of minutes, let me get on my little soapbox here. And because and, I, I, the older I get, the more simple this gets for me. You know, I said this in Sunday school last week. I said it in church last week. I'm going to say it again. People who don't read the Bible and then wonder, why am I struggling with life? I'd like to do the V8 smack on everybody's forehead. All right? I know that at the risk of sounding like Captain Obvious, folks, you got to read the Bible. Not in some weird legalistic way so you can check the box and now you're better than everybody else. No, because that's where intimacy's found. This woman found intimacy. To know Jesus and to be known by Jesus is to love Jesus because you're loved by Jesus. Let John 1 and John 3:17 again ring into your hearts. Listen to this guy. Paul Zoll says this. Intimacy is a word that can make you wince. It is used in sentimental settings. And it is sometimes deployed to describe relationships that are unworthy of the word. But it actually means something important. Intimacy is when I know somebody else as they really are. See, we've dumbed down intimacy and only made it physical. And thus, we've lost the importance of it. Intimacy is when I know somebody else as they really are. It is when I know someone inwardly and not just outwardly. You see, in our passage, Christ was uninterested, for an example, in human beings from the outside. <laughs> he was only interested in people from the inside. Remember what he says back to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, when he pulled away from people, the Pharisees, and he said, you are like whitewashed tombs. Zal continues and says, intimacy is the opposite of a whitewashed tomb. It is seeing into the core of a person while not being repelled by what you see. It has been my experience that human beings are desperate, I mean desperate to be honest with another human being and even with God. But the reason we are not honest with each other is the absolute crippling fear that if you really knew me as I am in here, you would not look at me the same way. 
shame is really the poison of our culture today. I will shame you. And all it does is create human games of hide and seek. But to really understand that intimacy with Jesus, the reason why I want you to go to God's Word is because you can go to God's Word and you can be known. God will look at you and you don't even have to tell Him. He will see all of your fears, all your failures. He'll see all of your secret junk. He'll see all your selfishness. He'll see all of the things, every thought. Thoughts that when you think them, you can't believe. Have you ever done that? I've been driving and I've thought stuff and, and then went, oh my goodness, where did that come from? Have you ever had one of those? Come on now, help me feel good about myself. Come on. I, mean, I've sh- I really have. I have shocked myself. I've lay in bed sometimes trying to drift off to sleep and then thought about someone or something and then thought. And I've rehearsed something that I really shouldn't tell you that I've rehearsed in my head. And then I'm laying there going, where in the world did that kind of violence and anger come from? And God knows it all. And he's not repelled by you. He loves you. He loves you. So we go from the setup to the shock, from confusion to diversion, from theological arguing to supernatural conversion. Our Samaritan woman comes to Jesus as Messiah. Now look at verses 26 and 27. At the end of 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. (laughs) This is an incredible statement in verse 26 because it's actually the first I am statement in the Gospel of John. If I actually wrote this word for word from the Greek, it would say to this, I who speak to you am. (laughs) Jesus is claiming right in front of her, I am. She says, I've heard about a Messiah. I've heard about one who comes. And Jesus says, I am. This is who I am. And these words must have rocked their world. They would have mine. (laughs) I tell you that. What about you? How would you have done? Well, they rocked her because this man who had just asked her for water was not telling her, was now telling her that he was the Messiah. Nicodemus back in chapter 3 might have been educated and trained in the ways of the Old Testament, thus knowing about signs and wonders of the past. But this lady lived off myth and hopes. And Nicodemus would exclaim, how can these things be? But our nameless, faceless, Gentile, half-breed outcast gets it and believes it. She simply trusts and obeys, and her trust leads to action, which we're going to get to in a couple of moments. But before I move on, let me sum this. See, don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. To be saved or converted or born again, to be right with God, to be a Christian, whatever your term is, whatever your knowledge, however veiled or exclusive it is, means this. You recognize that you have a desperate need for forgiveness of sin and you can't help yourself. This woman recognized, I have a need and I can't help myself. Number two, you confess or own this sin and need and repent of your sinfulness and desire to be forgiven. She she basically says, "I, I have no husband. 
And she says, and you can hear the urgency, I know about a Messiah. I know someone's coming. And he'll tell us all things. She realizes, I, I, I have needs. And thirdly, you embrace and trust Jesus Christ as the only one who can forgive you and the one who bore your sin and sinfulness. Folks, you've got to have these. If you don't have this, forgive me for being so blunt, but I tell you in love, you can't be saved. You can't claim to be a Christian. You can't claim to be a follower with God. You can't say, oh, I'm right with God because of your church or because of your family or because whatever happened. Listen, the only way, the only way I can tell you this, all right, I am a true blue Newfoundlander. I was born into the church. I was all the things that are supposed to happen. I was christened and confirmed. I went to, none of that saved me. (laughs) All it really did was delude me into thinking I was a good dude and caused me to miss the point of my own salvation and need for it. You see, she recognized she had a desperate need, not only for water, but deeper for forgiveness of sin. She confessed it. She embraced Jesus Christ. And now as this amazing conversation is reaching its climax in verse 26, if this was a movie, the music, you'd hear the violins, and all this kind of stuff. And you, I who speak to you am he. And then there'd be great things going off and all this. And then all of a sudden, you'd see a a close-up shot to this woman's face and tears in her eyes and that quivering lip and all we would lean in to see what she was going to say and change the channel wait verse 27 then the disciples showed up it's like what what are you doing what'd you do that for look at verse 27 just then his disciples came back i don't want to know about that i want to know what she did and i love this they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, and these two questions, one is directed towards the woman and one towards Jesus, all right? No one said to the woman, what do you seek? And then no one said to Jesus, why are you talking with her? This is the way these questions go in their mind. But I want you to catch this, just then. In the Greek, again, it would be at this point or at that very moment, just as Jesus is telling this Samaritan social moral outcast woman that he's the Messiah, these six Jewish dudes show up. Because he's only got six now, not the 12, right? There's only six of them. We learned about that in John chapter 1. But if you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, especially, we see and hear Jesus telling his disciples not to tell anybody who he is. Especially at the Mount of Transfiguration, when, it, when they all see Peter, James, and John see Jesus transfigured, and as they're coming down, Jesus, now listen, boys, what happened? Up, that was just between us. Keep your mouths quiet. I'll let you know when you should talk about this. But here, he's telling a Samaritan woman I'm the Messiah. (laughs) I would love to see the faces of these six disciples. You got to be kidding me. And again, they miss the point. All right, secondly, because now we're going to look at the talk with the disciples. Okay, so where you would have expected this to go from verse 26 to verse 29 and then drop down to like verse 36, there's this like interlude with Jesus and the disciples. And don't miss the point. 
all right? Because John the Apostle is the guy who writes this. He was one of the six, which by the way, commercial makes me believe the Bible to be true because no one would ever write this stuff making themselves look like an idiot. Because John does this. Basically, John tells us that Jesus, his heart and his mission is the gospel is truly for all people. And that the time is so urgent, it overrides our priorities and submits to God's. Not to drive us to work to death, but rather to work towards real life. Okay, make sure you understand this. Again, notice a couple things. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. They were amazed, wouldn't you be? I mean, honestly. If you live there, if you felt this, Jesus was this Jewish rabbi speaking to this unveiled Samaritan woman. And imagine if they knew what her moral history was because they didn't know that yet. Can you imagine as they're walking up and seeing this happen? You know James and John and Andrew. And Pe- what? What gives? Look what he's doing. I'm telling you, dude, we're going to get killed. He's going to do something and we're going to end up dead. Like, you know, if we turn around now, he's engrossed in conversation. We could all just disappear. I hear fishing's really good down in Galilee today. Let's just bolt. Like, they're totally mad. And, and, and even maybe, look, I can handle him getting us working on the Sabbath. I can handle him picking fights with the Pharisees. But, dude, talking to her, come off it come off it and notice they're thinking it john says they're thinking it but no one said no one had the human decency of these six to walk up and go honey can we help you do you need anything what and no one goes to jesus why are you talking to her they're thinking now listen you've all done it you've all done it again steve and i where uh, when we liked each other and we were getting along, um, we went to McDonald's for lunch one day and that we had ordered and the place was packed and this businessman in a suit walked in, looked at the line and literally just walked right to the front of the line, right up to the counter and started to make his order. Well, Steve and I were just like the disciples. We looked at that. Look at him. What do you think of that? None of us had the guts, neither one of us to go. Yo, dude, but some dude in a construction outfit that looked like it could kill you says from the back, yo, suit, the line's back here. I mean, be, I mean, he, he, like, he tore a strip. Of, and then Stephen Hargan, right? you know, do you ever see that, that show? I think it's on MVB. What would you do? That show where they put you in weird circumstances to see what you would do right? We've all done this. We've all walked in on something that was awkward or something we didn't understand or something was secretly deep down we didn't agree with, but no way were we going to push it. We just rather think about it internally. And so they do that. And notice the question that Jesus tells us. The first is a question that could have been asked to her, the second to Jesus, but no one, no one says a thing. And so not only did they miss the point, they missed an opportunity. They missed the point and they missed an opportunity. So Jesus now takes the time to teach the disciples about mission. So now let's skip down and skip over verses 29 to 30 and look at verses 31 to 38, okay? Because I love the way John sets all this up. In verse 31, it says, meanwhile, <laughs> I love that, because again, that's like, you ever watch them old, old westerns and stuff, and there's a narrator, meanwhile, back at the ranch, 
You know, it's like someone's trying to put all this stuff together for you. And so he says, meanwhile, our drama has lots of plot lines. While the woman who gets the point and is taking advantage of the opportunity, meanwhile, let's go back to these guys who don't get it. Because instead of asking the obvious question that verse 27 tells us they're thinking, they too decided only to deal with the physical. So they don't ask, what do you seek or why are you doing this? They come to the disciples urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. They pretended like the whole thing wasn't happening. They come up, the woman leaves. They probably stood there and watched her leave. Jesus, did you eat? What do you, like what is, like in his humanity, did Jesus not want to go slap, slap? right? They don't even ask him that. You know, did you eat? But notice what he says to them. I have food to eat that you do not know about. (laughs) And again, so the disciples, has anyone brought him something to eat? There was only six of them. Did you get him something? I wonder if some, is there a subway nearby? Did we pass McDonald's? How did he get food? They completely miss the point. They're competing again, but this time with an unknown challenger. They would bicker among themselves. They jockeyed for position. They played the blame game. But now they're like, who fed Jesus? Of all the things to get upset about, who fed Jesus? Talk about missing it. But Christians, if you're here in this room and you claim to be a Christian, look at what Jesus says next in verses 34 to 38. Notice what he says. In verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their hope. So what does he do? And let me clue it up with this. Number one, I want you to take this home with you. Spiritual takes priority over the physical. Spiritual takes priority over the physical. All right? Look at Jesus' response again. He's like, I have food that you don't even know about. Now, don't get me wrong, folks. Look at me. I like food. All right? I'm not here saying I don't. Some of you may still smell the ravages of the three turkeys that were consumed here last night. I mean, it was great here last night. I mean, you wouldn't believe how much food flowed here last night. It was amazing. But sometimes I wonder if I would actually put food ahead or above the souls of men and women. Now, take that a little further. What would it take for me to say, nope, not today. I've got this to do. I've got that to do. Oh, I love Jesus, and I love people, but hey, right now, I've worked hard. I've got this planned, or I got that planned, or I got that place to go. Now, you've all experienced this idea of being so engrossed in something that you actually went through food. You've been engrossed in a project at home, at school, for students or at work, and you just kept your head down because you wanted to get it done or you really enjoyed it and you were passionate about it. And all of a sudden, you looked up and the day was gone. 
You didn't even stop. Someone comes into your life and goes, hey, have you eaten? And you look up and you go, eat? What time is it? And they say, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, I, was, I really wanted to get this done. I didn't even realize that the day went by. You were totally consumed with the task at hand. I've done this and I've seen it done. From the serious to the frivolous. I've done this when I've seen surgeons saving patients. I've seen this when teenagers playing video games. We make decisions about what to make important and what to put off all the time. But Jesus tells his disciples what Paul would tell the Ephesians church, get this going home today. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that spiritual takes priority over the physical. Here's the question. Have you ever experienced that one time or those amazing times when serving God was like food and even provided you with energy? Where you're just like, oh, I don't care if I ever eat again because I just don't want this to end. Jesus' response should sound familiar when he says, I have food to eat that you do not know of. Remember how that's how he dealt with Satan back in Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God's will is for us to show him and share him with everyone. God's doing will is sharing God's gospel, bringing far more satisfaction and eternal satisfaction than any meal will. Now listen to me, okay? I am not saying that Jesus is telling us to starve to death. I'm not saying that Jesus says don't sleep or don't have balance or don't have margin in your lives. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus had margin in his life. Jesus slept. He got alone to pray. He often did these. But folks, I hear in the 21st century, so many people tell me that they're so busy with the temporary that we have no time or margin for Jesus or for what's eternal, let alone for people. And everybody wants their church to grow and everybody wants to have everybody around them. But guess what? To do that takes time and it's messy. Charles Spurgeon, may I be so bold as to say this. He said this in a sermon to 18,000 people. (laughs) Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, the Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dispiation would be a good good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you just roll up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored for very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics to be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a savior, no gray-haired man to enlighten in the things of God, no object in fact to live for, and who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair. (laughs) That's a great way to win people. And then quickly, Jesus says, urgency and passion drives our heart and our mission. 
The spiritual takes priority over the physical and urgency and passion drives our heart and our mission. Jesus gives them an agricultural lesson. He goes, guys, you know this stuff physically. You know that when they plant, it takes four minutes, four months before you harvest. But they didn't apply it eternally and spiritually. They understood things like gleaning. When he talks about the fact that you get to take part in this, and in Prince Edward Island, where I was for the last 15 years, I learned all about this. When a farmer harvests his crops, it is still legal to this day that the people can then go into that and they can glean whatever's left over. And that's not stealing, that's normal. You get to then go in and take part in what somebody else has labored for. You get to do that. I knew many families that would go into potato fields after the farmer had harvested and they could glean whatever potatoes were left over. And some got a hundred pounds of potatoes that they could share with their families. And they rejoiced that they got to do this. And this is what Jesus is telling them. Remember in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who, plant, or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And they see it because he says, lift up your eyes. And so finally, salvation transcends social biases and is for everyone. He says, lift up your eyes. For the fields are white on the harvest. Folks, this was not agriculture now. The Samaritans were known for wearing white robes. So now let's get back into the last chapter of the drama, which I'll tell you next week. All of a sudden, a town full of Samaritans are running out to meet Jesus at the well. And so what does he say to his disciples? Look, and here was a sea of white running out to meet them. As he says, the fields are white under harvest already. And I've primed the pump for you guys. I've already led one to her, one to Christ, and she's now given you hundreds, and you're asking me if I ate. You've missed the point. And so, church, will you let the spiritual take priority over your physical? Will you let urgency and passion drive your heart and your mission? And will you see that salvation transcends social biases and is for everybody? I was thrilled last night at our Thanksgiving dinner. We had people from Newfoundland. We had townies and baymen together eating. For those of you that are from Newfoundland, that's almost as bad as Jews and Samaritans. We had a kid who was born of Filipino parents but was born in Windsor, Ontario. We had a kid from Brazil, kid, young man. What am I saying, kid? Lucas is smarter than I am. We had young ladies from Belize and Honduras and from Tanzania and from Nigeria. Zimbabwe. <laughs> we had young people from the Philippines and from New Brunswick. It was awesome. Will we let ourselves be busy? Because you know what? At the end of the day, Jesus is trying to teach that woman and these disciples, Christ is enough. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. And let's this Thanksgiving weekend go share the point with our families and everybody else. Jesus is the Messiah.
Next week we'll come back and I'll give you the talk of the town. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to share your word with these, my friends, my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, visitors. And Lord, again, I plead with you that people will have heard a better sermon than I can preach. And Lord, as we now go, and maybe today is this afternoon when people will spend time with family, Lord, may we not miss the point. May we not be so wrapped up in the temporary that we miss the eternal. And so, Lord, whoever was here this morning, whether they were downstairs or here in this room, whatever they needed to hear from you, oh God, stop Satan from getting, letting them think now and push all this stuff aside. Lord, help them in love to be known and to be known as to be loved. To deal with whatever it is you're talking to them about. Because truly, Christ is enough. And we give this to you now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,